Happy summer. Have a great summer, folks. And welcome to the next show. It's amazing that despite this warmth, you uh, chose to watch us today. Um, I hope you have a nice, cool place to enjoy it. In the past, we had people from around the world attending our show. So please let us know here in the chat where you are right now. Just drop it here in the chat. In case you are watching our show for the first time, let me quickly introduce ourselves. My name is Ina Feistritzer. I'm the chief editor of the Next Conference and our various activities. With me in our extremely warm studio here in Hamburg is my lovely colleague René Deutschmann, who is responsible for our production today. Both of us are working at Zina Schrader, a company part of the global Accenture Interactive family. And with us, as usually, I can almost add, are our co-hosts for the show, conference curator and moderator Monique von Dusseldorf from Amsterdam, and trend watcher and keynote David Metten from London. Here in Hamburg, it is the first day of our summer school, uh, summer holidays today, so school's officially over. Not that there was much school this semester, but anyway, I'm super happy that I can take off my teacher's hat for the next few weeks and just concentrate on other things like this show, for example. So how about you, David Monique? Summer has started, but you and your kids um, are still have to wait for a little bit dongle, don't you? What's the difference? What's the difference? My kids are 13 and 16 and they've been doing nothing for four months now and they intend <laughs> to do nothing for another time. So yeah, we're I know okay. what you mean. Well, there is a difference for me because my children are six. They're six-year-old twins and we cannot teach them any more fractions or or grammar. So I've started a petition here in England to ban the summer holiday this year. So they stay at school all through the summer. But so far, I'm the only one who signed it. So pray for me. <laughs> all right, then. Our guest today is Professor Payal Arora. Um, thank you, Payal, to uh, join us here in the show. Payal is a digital anthropologist and oh, an yeah. author and speaker. She holds the chair in technology values and global media cultures at Erasmus University in Rotterdam. I guess similarly hot there. Her expertise lies in digital media experience and user values among low-income communities worldwide and comes with more than a decade of fieldwork experience. She is the author of a number of award-winning books, including The Leisure Commons, and more recently, The Next Billion Users. The letter she introduced at the next conference here in Hamburg last year. If you want to check that out as well, please visit our website. Um, you'll find it in the video section there. So, Payal, thank you so much for joining. Yeah, I guess thank you for the invite. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess you have been a frequent traveler in the past. Will you stay in Europe this summer or will you fly somewhere else? Well, we had the intent to go, you know, to Iceland, but that's got uh, cancelled because uh, my family, my partner's family is in Gutaslo, which is a small town which has reached New York Times headlines because of them. I know it. Yeah, irresponsible meatpacking, you know, industry, which has screwed that entire uh, town. So, yeah, they are staying and we are staying. Poor you. I hope your family is okay there. Um, yeah. I hope this whole thing won't uh, start the next outbreak in Germany. Mm. And maybe it keeps people thinking about meatpacking factories anyway. So 
Thank you so much, Payal, for joining us in the show today. Before we hear from you and your insights, I would like to hand over to Monique and David for their picks of the week. All right, thank you very much. Well, I've got one huge pick of the week that has so many sides that I'm going to just impact them really quickly because I want to mention all of it. K-pop, okay, where's my slide? Yes. Um, First of all, we all heard this story, you know, Trump claiming one million visitors or people that wanted to come to his rally in Tulsa. In the end, very few turned up. Good thing. But he also, uh, you know, what was also happening was there was an army of TikTok users and people asking on Twitter, but especially fans of K-pop that pre-registered sort of as a prank. Um, and, you know, they pre-registered for the event that then, of course, didn't come. That was the whole goal of pre-registering. So, we, you know, interesting, interesting. Who are these cable fans anyway? And, and this is actually not the first time they took action. So if you show the next one, um, weeks before, the Dallas police had asked the Black Lives Matters uh, protest going on, had asked the audience to send in videos and reports and pictures of things that didn't go well so that they could go there and take action. So what did the K-pop fans do? They flooded the app of the Dallas police with K-pop music, just so that they wouldn't get, you know, see what's going on at the Nazi. Very strange and interesting that they did that. And the second thing they did just recently is the BTS fans together donated over $1 million for Black Lives Matter uh, in 24 hours, because that was a competition that they threw out there. Um, because I really like the observations that were made by Tamar Herman in The Guardian. I mean, first of all, you should know that K-pop is an overwhelming force on social media anyway. In 2019, the fans sent 6 billion tweets, for instance, which is approximately 3% of all tweets sent by everybody. You know, this, this is massive. And there are around 99 million fans worldwide. And they have fan clubs in South Korean culture, K-pop, K-pop dramas, and so forth. So it's not just BTS, which is the big band there. Now, what Tamar Herman says is, more than being the meme of the moment, the recent high-profile examples of activism are the work of individuals who make up these K-pop fandoms. And there's no saying what will come next. Now, that fandoms, you know, fans of certain music, have learned to harness their political power. Nowadays, it's common for K-pop fandoms to create goals to try to break new records, always aiming higher and higher. And if the sky's the limit, momentum carries into social justice, it might just be the tip of the iceberg. Now, that sounds so nice and sweet. And look at these lovely boys and the music and the fans doing good things. But of course, there's the other side of that as well. I mean, this level of organization doesn't is not limited to, you know, the K-pop fans. So another weirdly named group of fans that Casey Newton was writing about today um, is called the Boogaloo Movement. Now those people are mainly interested in, you know, causing civil war. They really are, you know, extreme right, very unpleasant people, but very dangerous thoughts. But it's very loosely knit. It's all over the place. The opinions are all over the place as well. And um, uh, uh, the name comes from, uh, you know, Breaking to Electric Boogaloo, very interesting background story. Really do read the Casey Newton uh, write up on that one. Um, and they start to use all kinds of terms. So they use more than 50 terms now. Boogaloo, Big Igloo, Big Luau. So some people wear Hawaiian shirts. So it is this untraceable so force of fans working together doing things. I think it's pretty scary as well. 
Anyway, back to K-pop, because that was my main topic. Um, K-pop, of course, um, especially in the music industry, is you know music with a lot of fans, and then the fans start to do other things. That's very interesting. But if you come back to the music industry itself, you know, people making music, doing concerts, it is a little bit like the conference industry in the sense that, you know, it's a big bundle, people got together, but now they can't cannot get together in big groups anymore. So that whole business model is becoming unbundled. Now, what does K-pop do, or in this case, BTS? I think these, these groups online where there's a huge emotional uh, connection um, to the group will show other areas how you connect online and what can work. Uh, BTS gave uh, the biggest paid online music event, they say, last Sunday. Um, their show, Bang Bang Con, was streamed you know, around 100 minutes remotely from the studio in Seoul on Sunday. And 756,000 viewers across the world bought a ticket to see the show. So this is a massive audience. And you know, when this big unbundling takes place, it can go in different ways. This is the very last example I want to show. And it's, it's not K-pop related, it's, but it's music industry related. The Netherlands is a festival country. So, you know, this, this is a festival. This is IT&T promotional video. This is the audience. These people are connected to each other in their love for music, but also in being together. So what does IDNT do this summer? They actually started a campsite. You know, a site where you can bring your tent and be there and meet the same festival audience. We'll see what comes of that. But anyway, it was very interesting to see the connections being made. David, what did you check this week? Thanks, Monique. It makes me wonder what the what next fandom army could do to change the world or even influence the result of the US election. Who knows when these guys, when when the audience out there clubs together, what they could do. Also makes me think perhaps we should have a K-pop band on the show <laughs> because those kinds of numbers are truly impressive, truly impressive. So thank you. Look, my first story is right here from the UK. The British government has been working, like all the other governments or lots of them, on a test and trace app for coronavirus. Um, they were going it alone, very interestingly, here in the UK, not using the infrastructure from Apple and Google. But they've now had to reverse that decision. And at the heart of this story is just an argument about data and privacy and who gets to own the data. So Apple and Google in the development of these apps have been very firm in saying there should be no centralized database of information. Okay, these test and trace uh, apps should just ping people on a need to know basis. The information is distributed through the network. No single person or organization has a centralized database of who has been where and who's been in contact with who. The UK government, um, pretty unusually among most of the governments who agreed with Apple and Google, the UK government said, no, we do want a centralized database of information. We want to be able to see all the data ourselves. But they've had to row back on that and admit defeat. And they're going to use Apple and Google system because when they trialed their app on the Isle of Wight, which, if you don't know, is a little island off the south coast of England, um, it didn't really work very well. So, yeah, it had major flaws. And they're now having to change their mind and go back to doing it Apple and Google's way. It's just one angle on obviously a far broader story and one I've talked about before on the show and one I've written a lot about um, 
the power of these huge technology companies. They're turning into a form of, of a new form of power, a kind of socio-corporate power that we don't really understand yet. We don't really know how to deal with it. We don't understand the long-run impacts on governance and on our societies and the way it's all going to work. Obviously, Apple and Google, in this case, say they are acting to protect people's privacy. And that seems fairly reasonable. But then the follow-on question is, even so, should they be able to dictate to national governments in the way they kind of have how these test and trace apps should work? It puts them in a hugely powerful position. And if they can dictate that now, what else might they dictate later on down the road? Uh, and of course, yeah, we all saw Apple's um, conference releasing all kinds of stuff, talking about Apple Silicon. This all has echoes as well. The other one of the other big technology stories right now, which is Apple's on running uh, argument with Hey, the new email service made by Basecamp. Um, I'm sure lots of you guys have been following this story. Essentially, Apple said the Hey email app cannot live in the app store because it doesn't allow in-app subscriptions. And Basecamp say, we don't want to allow in-app subscriptions because we don't want to pay you the 30% you take whenever anyone takes a purchasing decision inside the app. And that's led to a huge huge war and developers have been saying Apple's been bullying us for years and the 30% is outrageous and this needs to come out into the open. Apple have now changed their mind and they're letting the Hey app go in the app store. But we're going to hear a lot more about this. I don't think this issue is going to die now. Apple is going to face some kind of reckoning about the way it treats developers inside the App Store and the rules it lays down inside the App Store. I have registered for Hey. I've got a free trial. And I want to understand whether I like it or not. So you guys out there, email me, mattin at hey.com. And then I can test Hey. I will reply to you. I can test Hey and report back to you on whether I like it. Okay. My second story, it's not just national governments that are going to be contact tracing you in future. Wired magazine ran a big and very interesting story this week about how employers, businesses are investigating new ways to contact trace for coronavirus their employees. Um, so the Wired magazine talked about Anglo-American mines rolling out this huge contact tracing system for all the mines it operates in South Africa, the, the workers there are going to have to wear wearable devices and it's going to test and uh, trace where they've been and who they've been in contact with and so on. Amazon as well are rolling out a system for their warehouse workers called Distance Assistant, which is a tongue twister and also a very sinister should be called Sinister Distance Assistant, which is an incredible tongue twister. <laughs> and it's going to trace where all the employees in the warehouse are. They're going to have to wear a wearable device. There's going to be huge screens in the warehouses that are showing the points in the warehouse of maximum like tra human traffic flow. And obviously, if you commit some kind of aberration or, or, or crime against social distancing, I guess you're sent to some kind of re-education camp where Jeff Bezos lectures you about coronavirus and social distancing and the importance of Amazon. So, yeah, that sounds very creepy. And I'm sure we'll hear more about that from Amazon warehouse employees in the, in the, year, in the months ahead. And my final story, and I know you're going to love this, Monique, because I know you love to keep track of Spot the Dog. Yes, I'm obsessed with this dog. We've seen this dog, Spot the Dog from Boston Dynamics. We've seen him patrolling a park in Singapore to help people maintain their social distance. We saw him in New Zealand herding sheep. He had a little bit of a kind of midlife crisis and he went to New Zealand and lived a rural lifestyle. <laughs> the big news this week is that you can now, for the first time ever, buy 
Spot the Dog. This is the first Boston Dynamics robot on release to the public. If you have $75,000 in your pocket, you can go out or go online, buy your own Spot the Dog, let him roam your house, scare your children, scare your own dog. <laughs> Um, and tell us how it feels. The good news for me is that Monique has very generously agreed to buy me one of these for Christmas. So I only have six months to wait and then I will finally have the relationship with Spot the Dog that I so clearly crave. So what do you think about that, Monique? You're muted. You're muted. Oh, well, I was just saying, if I buy you one, I have to buy Ina and myself one as well, right? So we can go out together and, you know, with our three dogs. It's no problem. Once we have those 100 million billion viewers from the K-pop band. Exactly. <laughs> we'll have a spot the dog each. All right. Thanks, David. Um, of course, I've now made a mental note. This guy has met him at hey.com. I need to go get from Dusseldorf. But anyway, not important. Okay, time to move on. This week, our star guest is the digital anthropologist, Pale Aurora. And Pale is professor of technology, values, and global media cultures at Erasmus University and the author of The Next Billion Users, which Engadget called the most interesting, thought-provoking book on science and technology we can find. And it's true. She's here to talk to us about the global value chain and what it means to you. So roll the credits. So, you know, there's been a lot of conversation about the global value chain because the same old conversation has come up is, is globalization good for society? And that's because what we are experiencing with the pandemic is that there are massive shortages in the global value chain in terms of ventilators, masks, I mean, medicines. And there's a lot of pressure about what to do about this broken system. Right. So people are really pushing for let's reset the system. And a couple of things are, you know, there's a lot of uh, evoking of vulnerability, fragility, and this real need to create smarter, more robust systems. Right. So um, but what do we mean? Why are they bringing up these terms in terms of vulnerability for a very generic abstract system like the global value chain, for example? a professor in this area talks about this incredible vulnerability that it is experiencing. And when you look at the context of the framing of that, what it's really saying is that vulnerability is really about not having hoarded enough, right? So what happens is companies usually outsource even the hoarding because it's cost efficient. Uh, it's not enough diversity of sources and suppliers. So let's not bank ourselves on China, which is like the factory of the world, or say Malaysia, that's the, you know, uh, owns about 70% or, and uh, sort of uh, operates the latex uh, shipping of 70% of it uh, to the world, or India, the pharmaceutical uh, center of the world. So basically the idea is we need to diversify suppliers, right? So in that sense, World, world Economic Forum also agrees and talks about, yes, Fragility means that we need to have, you know, more suppliers. And then when we talk about predictability, it's all about if only we can use technologies, automation, et cetera, even to revert the flow. So as to make sure consumers, and remember what is an assumption here is consumers, of course, are in the West, should not have an uninterrupted flow of consumption, right? So um, next slide. Now this, you know, this kind of language of vulnerability, 
fragility, you really kind of seek to hear something which is a little more humane, right? Where's the human dimension to this? This is also partly perhaps why people may feel extremely uncomfortable as they're reading news of Bezos becoming the possible first trillionaire in the world. At the same time, while there are warehouse protests out there uh, where hundreds of thousands of people are suffering just based on the basic rights of hand sanitizers, masks, or being able to get toilet breaks. And yet the language of vulnerability is applied so much to the corporate side, right? Now, this sort of humanizing of the corporate machine is not something new. It goes back to the 1800s. If you look at it in terms of uh, the railroad, um, the first railroad um, uh, out there in 1881, it actually, this is uh, the robber baron uh, Ray Gold actually faced enormous number of protests. 200,000 people came and his factory workers came to protest because what were they complaining about? They're complaining about, you know, oppressive hours, you know, 10 to 14 hours. They were talking about wages which were below subsistence level. They were talking about inhumane conditions in the workplace and they just could not have any more of it, right? But the strike was killed and it gets even more perverse because during that time, what he does is that he uses the 14th Amendment, which was a law created to protect racial identity and protect the freed slaves, you know, and he reverts and applies that to the corporate identity. And he argues convincingly that a corporate identity deserves the same rights as racial identity. So, and they win. And today, we still have the cooperation as a person. It actually has legal status of personhood, right? So next slide. Now, you know, I'm okay with sort of saying that, okay, that's history, right? I mean, surely we progressed. But look at what's happening today in this modern uh, slavery chain. We have 40 million people in modern slavery. And these are the kinds of plights that they are experiencing. For example, Action Aid and uh, Human Rights Watch just recently, uh, a year or so ago in the report, uh, did massive surveys of uh, garment workers. And here are a couple of plights. It's like, you know, I work for 11 hours and feel like my buttocks are on fire. We can't even go to the toilet, says one, right? Another is that we don't even have a break. We're not even allowed it, right? And uh, so this idea that, that having a toilet break is a privilege or it's something that is a negotiation, right, it reminds us of the plight that there's not much has changed. In fact, if you look at the uh, garment industry, it is kind of crazy because you will, just recently in the headlines, the garment sector bailed out on three billion euros worth of goods because they said, you know what, COVID has happened. We can't deal with it. We need to cut losses, even though much of the raw materials were already bought by the suppliers in places like, say, Bangladesh. We're talking about that entire economy. We're talking about two thirds of them rest on that. And millions of the workers, a majority of them women and children who get paid far lower, 70 to 80 percent of these women experience sexual harassment, rape in the workplace, abuse. And this continues to go on, right? And many of them are anonymous because they're petrified of losing their jobs. So let's go to the next um, slide. 
So I've actually come up with uh, a new project recently and along with a team in India, Bangladesh, Germany, and the Netherlands called Feminist Approaches to Labor Collectives. And we're not just, you know, we're tired of the same old like victimhood narratives. We're going to be churning out new kind of narratives which are not just about, okay, here's a plight because that's been covered for decades. And if someone wants to watch one of the very engaging videos by John Oliver on this. This was, you know, I think a year or so ago, he talks about this, how with the Rana collapse, they're like, oh my God, we've got to do something. And there's outrage. People forget. Then another thing happens and we have to do something. And every single time we're talking about the same damn story. And we've decided much like actually what Monique brought up earlier is to use TikTok and other popular mediums because you know what Bangladesh, India, and all these countries have? is the next billion users and they are active online they are making a difference and to get them online to really sort of shame and name these brands poke fun of them show their resilience their creativity their humor in spite of the situation and also rename the game or the rules of the game right so next so it really matters about the stories we tell. We need to sort of really diversify the stories. And part of it is, you know, really making visible the vast invisible populations that we just do not even account for. And remember these global value chains, that is a huge chunk of their value chain. It's really the bottom of the pyramid, but the bottom is very heavy. And actually I would call it the foundation of these uh, global systems. So, um, you know, let's shift gears to another story, right? Uh, of course, the favorite is Trump because, well, how could we not talk about Trump? But this, that's the problem, right? It's such a compelling story. It's almost like it's an addiction. It's like a bag of chips, you know, it's not good for you, but you can't not eat it. And you're like, what next did he do? And he's like, yeah, sure. I'm taking, uh, you know, hydrochlorine. And of course, you know, it's, you can, you know, he says these ridiculously outrageous things, fine. What does the media do? Media covers it across Europe, the US. There's numerous stories about it, but what are they actually uh, covering? This is a drug for malaria, right? To, to prevent malaria, it's a sort of uh, enablement of that uh, and to be able to trap it. But also, of course, you know, it is used for lupus and other things, but that's a small sliver of it. But much of the media covers is like, oh, but we need to be stockpiling it and there's going to be shortages in Europe or in the United States, or it could be misleading innovations, it could be thwarting our innovation, or what about the patients of lupus in Europe, in the United States? But you know what we don't hear about is the fact that malaria is a poor person's disease. And, you know, if you look at the statistics, 94% of the deaths are taking place in the African region. How can we not be deeply outraged that this is a very important drug which will actually impact millions of lives and majority of them are children under the age of five? Why is this not a story? Why do we not feel this is worth a read, right? Is it because we're exhausted with the sort of poverty porn stories or that it's just too distant equals disengagement, right? That the further you are away that, you know, and this is why we need digital storytelling to sort of bridge that distance, right? To create new kinds of intimacies where we can start feeling empathy again. And um, 
you know, all good, you know, you can say, ah, oh, you know, maybe it's just these, okay, granted the media companies because they just, you know, they become reactive these days, right? Or, okay, we can't help it because news production has become a problem. They become like instinctively, uh, they have to cover it. But what about these people who are dedicating themselves to becoming the architects of a new kind of social design? I'm talking even from the left, right? Uh, a guy, Rutger Bregman, who's become quite a celebrity and with his uh, original book, uh, his first book on Utopia for Realists, which really got a lot of, uh, sorry, not his first book, but a book that got a lot of attention and now Humankind. And basically, he is all about let's redesign society, which is far more ethical, far more, you know, empathetic. We need to really believe in humankind. And he has this really compelling narrative, right? He came up with an article in The Guardian that was read seven million times by a lot of politicians. And it's not a surprise because what he's saying is he's giving hope to people. He's like, you know what? William Golding and his sort of hypotheses of the Lord of the Flies, that if you leave a bunch of children together, they will just become the worst of the human nature. Because by nature, we people are wild sort of people. You know, we, we need social institutions, we need laws to like regulate us. Otherwise we, we become extremely barbaric. And he says, not so. We are actually innately good in many ways. And he gives an example of a real world story of a real Lord of the Flies, right? Sorry, not, not yet changed, but all right. Uh, so he gives a, a story of a real world uh, example of a bunch of Tongan boys who get trapped on an island, right? Because they were trying to escape their missionary schooling. And then they managed miraculously to survive 15 months in isolation, right? Until Peter, this Australian sailor, discovers them and rescues them. So this whole wonderful white savior story, but it even gets worse. These boys after 15 months of like surviving get thrown into the prison because they stole a little boat to get off, right? These are teenagers. So nobody's celebrating them for returning, but they're thrown into prison and it gets even more perverse. Remember now the way Bregman frames this is that, ah, the boys had a little adventure, right? And then, Peter had a great plan. The white savior did because he actually managed to get them out of jail in exchange for exclusive media rights of their story. And that's not enough. He got the Tonga uh, monarchy to give him exclusive industry rights to set up his own fishing, like a crab fishing company, which was earlier denied because they didn't want that monopoly. And he is the story of hope. That is basically what Rutger Bregman is touting as a story of hope. And we got into a major Twitter war a few weeks ago because I retaliated in an uh, RC article, which is a Dutch paper, saying that, excuse me, is this, have you forgotten the colonial history and why these black, you know, it's sort of ironic, these black persons were thrown into the jail. If these were white boys, would they have been thrown into jail after 15 months of, you know, surviving such an ordeal? I don't think so. There is a racial history, there is a colonial history, there is a power dynamics, and whose story are you telling, right? And what about the commodification of their plight through these media rights? Anyway, so this is just to say, and wrapping it up here, is that we are really in a point where we need to really rethink a certain number of 
values we hold dear. When we talk about value, we cannot let efficiency override morality. There has to be a higher moral code to live by. Surely people can't, I am sure every consumer out here will not get behind paying a little more, paying a little less on a garment if they know that's depriving people of a toilet break all day, right? It's just not something that we are willing to stomach. And you see the Black Lives, Lie, Black Lives Matter movement and all. It's not about identity politics, clearly. It's about empathy politics. People are realizing that there is a certain amount of higher level justice that people want for these systems to be fixed. We're not trying to reset it to mend the broken system to the way it was or to optimize it into the way it used to be, right? But just getting better. Because after all, remember that when they talk about the diversification of suppliers, they were the ones who created the monopolization in the first place. They forced many of the Global South countries into specializing in one raw material so it could be easier, denying them self-sufficiency, and now that's become the problem. So there needs to be a high amount of self-responsibility if we are to move forward into reassessing this global value chain. And I think uh, that's about it for now. Another scary <laughs> story for the weekend. <laughs> well, thank you. That is a really, really big story and a big critique also of how systems are. I, I was just wondering, I mean, a lot of what you describe has been in place for a long, long time. And then in the last, uh, well, 10, almost 20 years, uh, the digital network, digital supply chains have developed. And I mean, honestly, just today, my kid, you know, he has ordered some fake sneakers from some place in China. He then is negotiating with people online in Taiwan and there's something in Hong Kong and is stored. And I mean, he on his own is sort of making use of this big global chain. Is anything of the fact that this global chain is now so digital and therefore accessible to so many more players, has anything of that been beneficial? Has anything of that been good for the people that you are talking about? Oh, absolutely. So one of the, uh, you know, basis of our current project FemLab Co is that auditing systems of what's happening, you know, behind the factories, etc., have been very traditional, like uh, surprise visits, of course, notifying the supervisor. It, it, it's almost like it's designed to not be audited, right? So the, we need to reimagine auditing systems because the fact that we have to believe that consumers are just in general decent people who don't want to feel tainted by actually you know, patronizing unethical practice, but they need to know and they need to be compelled, but not through these typical poverty porn stories. So we are using digital goods like crowdsourcing, anonymous uh, reporting where it's directly to the brands, actually into the public, right, through TikTok videos, and then getting the pressure to the brands for them to do the right thing. Because, you know, that's the only way, is if you create a public uh, sort of spectacle out of it, uh, you know, and particularly not by, oh my God, here's a whole bunch of women crying around. Actually, they have a lot of humor, they have a lot of irony and, you know, just to capture that human element and people are like, okay, I can relate to that person. And yeah, so it's, it's pissed off too. Saving the world by digital storytelling, basically. Absolutely. 
David. Yeah, thank you. Fascinating. And uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm uh, uh, on the same tack sort of it, it sounds as though you think a part of the answer <clears throat> to some of these issues and part of what your startup is about is, 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 is transparency, essentially. And that if you let consumers see into organizations and see, you know, see their global supply chain and see how it works and see the, the human truths of that and you do it with some humor um, you, that's what that's what will make a difference in the end. Is is that right? Yeah, because see, transparency is not about revealing what's happening. Because honestly, these stats have been around for decades. These stories have been around for decades. But somehow, consumers think that once the story is out, it's got fixed, right? Like yeah. oh, the Toronto collapse happened, so safety measures are put. Surely, right? Like fine. No, it didn't. It just there was a lot of PR and very little actual change. So this sort of rapid reproduction of this is very tiresome. So we are not just stopping at transparency. We are about taking control of the story. And that's the only way. Taking control of the story, just like actually very inspiring K-pop way, right, is that you bombard a brand with all kinds of, like one of the ideas is that imagine these garment factory workers, okay, these number of these women reading out the policies of companies just in their own voice and just getting the irony of it, you know, and you see a lot of that with Trump and the uh, TikTok videos of people literally saying what Trump is saying, but yeah. you know, wrong. Yeah, yeah. Sarah Cooper. It's, uh, yeah. Exactly. It's absolutely, you know, entertaining. Imagine now garment factory workers reading these ridiculous rules that you can only take one toilet break in 14 hours and blah, blah. They're like, Oh yeah. You know, and just, Putting and also the words that these people have said and just showing the irony of the whole situation, right? Uh, and that's, I think, the way, like, we, we're coming up with a number of different uh, ideas. We're going to be working with artists, comedians uh, in India, in Bangladesh. And we need to have fun with this because people need to get engaged, need to laugh. And I think comedians are great because you laugh and then you feel extremely uncomfortable. And then that discomfort is the material for social change. Yeah. And are you optimistic that this gives us a, the, the, the pandemic and lockdowns and, you know, the conversation everyone's having um, is a window or a chance for positive change? Yeah, because what's also interesting is there's a lot of uh, free top ups for data because a lot of these people <clears throat> have to get online for to be tracked, to be, you know, so you are going to see it already there was an exponential news arise. Now it's just going to accelerate and it's already because like mobile payments in one month alone, Bangladesh released a mobile payment app within one month. They've been taking years to try to do something like that. And now two thirds mm -hmm. of the population have access to that, right? Now that's quite something. I mean, so I think COVID has been a trigger which has forced governments to get companies to give like free data or top up data to a lot of the population because they have to access basics like healthcare to be tracked to be and that platform can also be turned around. And that's what we're hoping for the more people online, the more kind of pressure they are engaging in these stories, and it can make more of a difference. <clears throat> Monique, do we have some interesting questions from the audience coming through? Yeah, let's have a look. Where? Okay. What other big changes do you see, apart from the pain, triggered or accelerated by Corona? 
That's are there okay. other, well, I mean, I'm especially interested in, of course, all kinds of digital, but what other changes do you see happening now in Bangladesh, India? Yeah, I think uh, one is that the, the idea that people are realizing that the changes that are happening here are not necessarily able to happen there because social, a lot of it doesn't make sense. Social distancing in three generation family homes that uh, stay in a one room home mm. makes no sense. Migrants are, don't have homes and that's millions of people. And they have become actually their internal migrants, whether within China, in all these factories, when they shut down, a lot of them had to go back home and a lot of public transport was shut. So they actually were homeless. So in many ways, again, that didn't make sense to stay home, right? Be safe, stay home. That's sort of moralizing of you are a responsible citizen if you stay home. So on the contrary, those changes actually didn't take place. And that itself is telling because people had to make a living. They had to be a lot. We're talking about 70 to 80% of these economies are informal economies, which means we're talking about the street, street vendor who's pushing a cart of fruit, right? When he, where is he supposed to go? How is he supposed to survive? He's willing to take that chance of you're saying, okay, I may get COVID or I may die of starvation because I have no livelihood to take care of my family. So these are the kinds of things is that it's actually made a sort of a mockery of a righteousness of stay home, be responsible, be ethical, because when you put it in these contexts, it is deeply disturbing and unethical, actually, I would say. There's another question um, from Jens, and he's asking um, about social media alternatives to, for instance, Facebook. Facebook, of course, has a terrible reputation for good reason. Um, do you see that in uh, among the populations that you follow, there's different use of social media or other tools or other platforms? How does it differ from what we see out here? See, I mean, we all are experiencing one thing is that there are hyper monopolies, very, very much what David talked about. There's a sort of a, it's like the mafiadom, right? Of iOS and Android. And they are like, you know, taking their cut on every transaction that happens. And this is, that's the thing. It's not a national centric, you know, issue. It is a global issue, which requires global reform. And so in this case, you know, people understand that it's, it's, and especially if we can't even in Europe, that is a wealthy continent, compete with the likes of say, uh, the Silicon Valley, it, it's not just resources. It's like, you know, anyway, but the point is that we realize, and a lot of these citizens realize that, okay, you can't invent something already, but what you can do is you know that your data is currency, which means you have power, which means that you can pressure systems to change and in a way that will make them much more fitting to you. And so I think that's really, but it's a David Goliath story. But I do believe that change will happen because look, Google and all these, you know, Google came about because of a very archaic traditional encyclopedia, uh, like encyclopedic practice, like Wikipedia and all. So we, when we have very traditional, non-inclusive sort of systems, innovation comes up. And then they have now become the monopoly that, and they're going to have inspiration from small actors who's going to find a loophole because there's enough anger to fuel for people to migrate. They just need an option. 
I, I, it's hard to phrase that optimistically. There's enough misery and anger right now to make the world a better place, right? That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. down to. Okay, David, I think maybe one more question before we move to the next segment, right? Yeah, well, Martin in the audience asks, um, as you brought up the outbreak in meatpacking companies, can they be considered an issue or result of slavery as well, in your opinion? Oh, absolutely. Modern day slavery is, you know, what, what basically it is, is that they have very little choice. Firstly, no one should be working below subsistence wage. That is, I, if I'm working 10 to 12 hours, at least I should be able to take care of myself and my family, at least, right? And that's actually not true because we are moving, these systems have moved them below the lowest common denominator. And here's a, a craziness is the risk in reforming uh, these global supply chains and global value chains is most absorbed by those segments that needs the help the most. So salary cuts or salary payment delays by months, right, for those in Bangladesh. We're talking about pennies, but that accumulates and it allows for the profit margin. The consumer doesn't get priced as much because nobody wants to, you know, harm the consumer. And so, yeah, that's uh, the meatpacking is very much part of this bigger story and it takes a global reform. We really need to rethink the way in which we connect with each other because, you know, what's sad is that there's uh, sharing the fact that these brands, garment brands, for example, uh, you know, reneged on contracts. It would actually be illegal if it was internal, right? But it is, they, they, the legality of, there's no such thing as a global legal system right now, which can hold them accountable. So except for moral outrage, name and shame, CSR, you know, hoping that they need to fix their brand, but that's not enough. We can't like, you know, go by that. That's ridiculous, right? So absolutely. Okay. I think now is the time. As much as we love having Pale on here on planet Earth, it's time <laughs> for us to send her away from Earth to a new planet because it is time for our regular Next World interview segment. So let's roll the credits for that. Thank you so much for your insights, Vail. But now it's time for something very different. I'll set the scene for you. Imagine this. It is the near future. Amid an increasingly acute crisis on planet Earth, a team of technologists finalizes a daring plan to start a new chapter for humanity. Along with 1,000 specially selected people, they will travel far beyond the solar system to the planet next one. There, they will establish a permanent base, a new society, a new home for human beings. Payal Aurora, thanks to your outstanding achievements, you have been chosen to be among the first 1,000 pioneers to travel to next one. But before you undertake your journey, you must answer five questions. Let's see, question one. 
Name one luxury physical object you want to take to your new home. Well, uh, since I moved to the Netherlands about 10 years ago, and guess what? I actually learned cycling here after... I thought you said cheese. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would take a cycle because, damn it, I learned cycling in Amsterdam. I survived cycling in Amsterdam. I'm taking <laughs> that damn cycle wherever I go. It's an extension of myself, my Dutch identity. And you know what? I hope it doesn't get stolen because there's uh, less of a likelihood, I believe, in the new community. So, yeah. We'll get to that later. <laughs> Name one exceptional person who should qualify to be among the first 1,000 pioneers. So, you know, uh, my first book, I went to this uh, a place called the Himalayas and it was this rural area in Almora. And I met this girl. She was like 12, 13. Her name is Mohini. And she had polio. And you have to understand, this is the Himalayas. If, if you can walk on a mountain and you're a woman, you are not marriageable. And she was so gutsy, so fierce, so funny. And there was a new law that was released that you could, women can run for elections in the local village council. And she ran. She was the youngest female. And she said, screw this. I can't get married. But you know what? I'll take care of my parents. And she was 13. And, you know, I actually dedicated, I wrote an entire chapter in my first book called Mohini. And because through her experiences, I gained so much hope, resilience, and, you know, um, creativity in, in spite of the adversity. And I think we need that kind of person in this community if we are to really succeed in a very empathetic way. Absolutely. What's, what's the book? Could you say the title again? It's called Dot Com Mantra, Social Computing in the Central Himalayas. Cool. I'd love to read about her. Sounds very interesting. How old is she now? So it's, uh, yeah, she's in her 20s now, late 20s. It'd be interesting to see where she's at now. But for the next question, create one law except from stealing, that bans something from next one forever. Explain. So the basic stuff is dealt with already, so you don't have to worry about your bike. Yeah, so if you're not talking about murder and, you know, the usual suspects, yeah. right, here's what I would suggest. I would say ban bans. And here's what I'm talking about. Is that, you know, banning is an intellectual laziness because when you ban something, it's a black and white issue. Because you see it as you should ban, you know, anti-privacy apps or, uh, you know, which loses all nuance, all context. And basically what we need today is good governance. We need governance, which is thoughtful, which is getting boring with the details because there is no black and white in here. And mm -hmm. that is, I think banning is usually the resort of authoritarian leaders who say, I am going to ban the usage of this public space for block, you know. So, yeah, let's ban bans now. I'm with you. Explain one truth about human nature or one ethical principle to live by that you have learned from experience. Well, I, I think this is really, you know, a continuation of my, um, you know, conversation about Rutger Bregman is that we are not innately 
good or bad or any we don't need these kind of hopeful narratives of hey guess what don't you worry people are really actually really good don't worry about that no i think we are you know it's a fallacy we don't need these psychometrics what we need is to understand that what makes us special and uh, in, in terms of our human nature is that we have the spectrum of possibility we have the bandwidth to be from the most wild to the most you know compassionate beings and it makes it even more interesting that human nature chooses as a peg of something which is above them so they can aspire to be not something that they are but something they can be and that's the beauty of human nature is that we understand our fragilities we understand our limitations but we also believe in ourselves and that's fascinating absolutely last week's pioneer was the designer and strategist Ben Sauer and he wants to know from you what are the most common false assumptions that people in the west make about technology use and culture in india and other countries yeah so you know in my uh, book and the next billion users one of the main points uh, that i you know make across the text is that contrary to what we believe people are in very low income contexts that are so alien to our Im imagination to our very own conditions we somehow believe that they must surely be very very different from us right because they're so exotic in us in many ways but actually on the contrary they're very much like you and i in a sense that they are very much the, one of the common beliefs is that of course if you're a low income person with very little money you will follow the sort of maslow pyramid of satisfying your basic needs and only in the end self actualization leisure actually that is the main drive that has pushed most of these young low income people online is they want to be entertained they want to watch porn they want to like romance and get a girlfriend or boyfriend just before they arrange marriage or maybe even after you know the point is is just like they are very much if the idea is that if we were in their conditions and plight we would probably behave similarly and this, that is really the glue that makes us you know a global citizen thank you that was a very interesting point the last question is a question that we ask you to ask mark adams who is our next speaker next week is the vice president head of innovation at vice india yeah so mark is doing a lot of cool stuff on innovation and you know you know when we think about innovation we see it often designed and for the sort of typical default user which often happens to be white male middle class in the west and so that's pretty much neglecting majority of the world's population right half the world's population billions of them are low income now with covid is probably going to be below poverty line soon so my question to him is how do you see the future of innovation by putting the billions of these marginalized majority the global poor at the center and will that change design cool thank you i'm looking forward to his answer there next week
Thank you so much, Fayal, for this super interesting talk you gave. I took away a lot of things there. Thank you, guys. It's been fantastic. And very Thank you. <clears throat> Have a safe voyage, and I hope you enjoy next one. And I hope yes. that your bike, I'm sure your bike will not be stolen because it's a very <laughs> high-quality community of people you know, in fact, there's only, well, we only have selected like how many? Eight so far. I don't think any of our previous guests would steal your bike. No, definitely so not. Hey, hey, that's what they said about Amsterdam. And that didn't happen, did it? <laughs> <laughs> so. They need to build some, you're going to need to build some roads and some cycle lanes and stuff. But um, you will get, you'll definitely get there. Thank you. We definitely need a construction worker on board as well. Yeah. <laughs> but hey. That's unfortunately all we have time for today. So thank you, David. Oh, thank you, care. Monique. And thank you, Payal, again. It was all great right. having you on the show. Next week, as we already heard, we'll uh, welcome Mark Adams to the show. He's the head of innovation of Vice Media. Before that, he helped celebrities to gain new audiences. So with us, Mark will share some of his insights on how to thrive in the digital space and hopefully how to innovate um, in a more prosperous way. Before we leave this digital space now, I would like to thank our hosting partners, Accenture Interactive and Factor 3, plus our web webinar and video platform provider 23, as well as our media partner, T3N. Also, thanks to Deborah Ray Burns of the representation agency Propeller, who made it possible that Payal and also next week's guest, Mark, are speaking on this show. And by the way, it is her birthday today. So all the best for you, Deborah. And last but not least, a big thank you to the lovely people providing us with video footage and to everyone involved in planning, organizing, and producing this show today, especially to Payal, the next team, and my fellow hosts, of course, and to you, the audience. Thank you, and have a great and sunny afternoon. Bye. Bye. <laughs>